This is I Was There, Gigs That Changed the World. How do you react to your group's reputation as being the most revolting in the country? <laughs> I find it very amusing. There's no way it's a bad example, it's an extremely good example. What happened was, was that I noticed that there was a few news reports about these new bands that were forming a new movement and they were being criticised for being nihilistic, angry, very amateurish. They seemed to have a fight at every gig they did. And I was mentioning this to my friends and saying, look at this. We'd read reviews and, you know, the reviews said this was a dangerous band and there was lots of trouble and everybody hated them and they couldn't play their instruments and the music was shit and, you know, you name it. It had all the green lights that would have attracted certainly me at that time. Malcolm McLaren, you discovered and managed the group. Now, what about the accusation that you're more into chaos than anything else? Well, that's an accusation by people who really don't understand what kids want. Two students... Pete and Howard are sitting in the canteen at Bolton Tech one day and they see a copy of the New Musical Express. And there's an article there about Sex Pistols. Don't look over your shoulder, but the Sex Pistols are coming. And that was the headline. And they're talking about, we're not into music, we're into chaos. And these two young guys thought, that sounds interesting. And the two guys said to Malcolm McLaren, the Pistols manager, if we could organise a gig in Manchester... Would you come and play? I was reading the music press and I noticed an advert for the Sex Pistols in Manchester, uh, 50p at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. And when we came home, I said we should go and see this. Manchester was a pretty grim place. There was a lot of people who were fed up and had nothing to do and they didn't have a lot of prospects. But I personally was always looking for something a bit different, really. So something like that would have pricked my ears up without a doubt. But let's perhaps be frank about it. Do they enjoy being known as, as a revolting group? Every young kid finds enjoyment in being known as revolting. We went to see them and literally it was unbelievable, unbelievable, yeah. Episode 10. The Sex Pistols at Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall. The 4th of June, 1976. Pamela Rook. When you think back then, going up to Manchester was quite a big deal. A lot of bands now just go all over the country, don't they? Don't think twice about it. But you're out of your comfort zone. You know, you never know what you're going to find. You know, early on with the Sex Pistols, it was like, oh, God, we're going to Manchester. The Pistols were very nervous on the way up. John Berry. There would be me, Pete Hawk, Bernard Barney Dickin, as he was called, and Bernard Sumner. It was uh, another mate of ours called Crazy Mike, and I think Sue Barlow was there, who was Barney's girlfriend. That was the core uh, of our little group. Steve Diggle. I'd found a guy in the paper to form a band. I said, we'll meet outside the Free State Hall, and we'll go to a pub round the corner. I was still outside the Free State Hall, and Malcolm McLaren was there going, they're in here, the Sex Pistols, Cavaliers... Dodgy, mysterious, wonderful and beautiful, you know. A real character. Because don't forget, he got me in there. He said, they're in here. They're in the free trade hall. And I'm like, what's he talking about? Well, I told him I was waiting for somebody for a chance. Suddenly I was swept in there. I had personally never heard of it. And I'd been at the free trade hall many, many, many times to see bands. And I'd never heard of it. I didn't know it existed. So, so there's basically a, a door 
and there may well have been a sign that said lesser because it was tiny little bronze letters from what I remember that said free trade all or lesser free trade all that you could barely see. So from what I recall, it, it was a door with a set of stairs going up into the auditorium and it was quite a small venue. Peter Hook. Right from the moment you walked in at that gig, when Malcolm McLaren was dressed all in leather and he was in the ticket booth and Malcolm McLaren actually sold us our tickets for the gig, 50p. And right from the moment you walked in, it was unsettling because I'd never seen anything like him in Manchester. And then we went into the gig. And everybody was very, very pensive. They were very confused about what was happening. Nobody knew what we were in for. We were wary because we'd read about it. We'd read that, you know, there was a lot of trouble and they were up for a, a rook and this, that and the other. So I would have guaranteed that we would have kind of sat quite close to the rear and slunk down in the seats just in case anything started flying about. I had no idea what to expect when we went up there, not at all. It was quite dismal, actually. I mean, when we got to Lesser Free Trade Hall, it was like, oh, there weren't many people there, but everybody looked really quite ordinary. I think Howard was doing something on the stage, messing with the lights or whatever. So I met Pete Shelley in the bar. Me and Pete sat at the back and there was rows and rows of seats in front of us empty. I don't know, it seemed like there was about 20 people there. Now, they put an ad in the paper to meet somebody. So the person they were supposed to meet and the person I was supposed to meet, we didn't meet them, you know. <laughs> David Nolan. The whole thing for Howard and Pete was a bit of a ruse. It was a bit of a con, really, because essentially the only reason they wanted Pistols to come up to Manchester was so that their band that they were putting together, called Buscocks, could act as the support band. Well, my ticket stub, which I still got, it was obviously supposed to be the Buzzcocks who were supporting, but they weren't ready. So they kind of sourced this hippie band from Bitsu, Bolton Institute of Technology, called Solstice. Cracking name for a hippie band. Who were a kind of hippie, progressive rock band from the Bolton Blackburn area. Quite proficient and professional because they had a smoke machine and a, and a little light show and all the rest of it. We went into that gig and watched the support band who were a mountain cover band and they actually played the Nantucket sleigh ride for 23 minutes. And it's this kind of bombastic, you know, heavy rock, progressive rock kind of stuff. And then on come the Sex Pistols. If you want to look for a moment, they have it. The moment when things changed, when this city changed, when music changed, when everything changed, is the gap between Solstice coming off stage and the Sex Pistols coming on stage. There's your moment right there. And then the Sex Pistols came on and were like somebody opening a door in a darkened room. All of a sudden, I saw the light. The bumptious pistols in jumble sail attire had those few that attended dancing in the aisles despite their discordant music and barely audible, audacious lyrics. I'd love to see the pistols make it. Maybe they will be able to afford some clothes which don't look as though they've been slapped in. Steve Morrissey, 
NME Letters Page, 27 June 1976. Um, that's Morris's quote from the Sex Pistols gig, then, yeah. Uh, it's about right there, really. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, crikey. Why were they so different? I just don't think you could possibly imagine. You know, the people who were in the know and went to that gig must have just seen something from outer space. They looked like they were struggling. (laughs) It was the way that they looked like a square peg in a round world. They stuck out. Their look was quite... DIY, really. Johnny Rotten's wearing a ratty old T-shirt held together by safety pins and a ratty old yellow waistcoat. Steve Jones is wearing a black boiler suit. Glenn Matlock's wearing paint-splattered trousers. It was a look that you could have knocked up in your bedroom before you came out. I felt a bit out of place, to be honest, because I thought, crikey, like everybody looked like they were just wearing like school blazers almost. Compare that to the audience all looking transfixed at the pistols. And the audience, their hair is down to their backsides, that's the blokes. Flared trousers, cheesecloth, beards, sideburns, the full kind of 1970s look. And they're looking at the future, in a sense. The Sex Pistols looked different. They acted like football hooligans. They were revelling in their lack of style, their lack of uh, know-how their lack of musical finesse and that I thought they seemed more like me I could actually feel a connection with them I mean everybody the Pistols me everybody looked so different from the audience but everyone was really into it That was one noisy gig, that was, and I'd seen The Who at Bellevue, and that was one noisy gig. But they seemed to have turned up with enough PA to play the free trade on, and mind the lesser. So it was a cacophony of sound. They came out, I mean, it was a breath of fresh air. It was like some kind of British New York dolls with something else, you know. Steve Jones's guitar screaming away, Johnny Rotten screaming away. But it was an inspiring noise, you know. It was like a call to arms. They didn't care what you thought about them. Which was a great attitude, I thought. You know, It made you want to inquire more about it. When they came on, they just made an unholy racket. The sort of mantra that they were preaching was exactly me. I couldn't do it. I wasn't a musician. But I wanted a better world. I wanted to be excited in living. Through the sort of noise and the, the racket, I could kind of make out Substitute and Stepping Stone. They played a mixture of Pistols originals and some kind of choice cover versions. So in their set at the time, a little bit of The Who, Substitute, a little bit of What You Gonna Do About It, kind of this 60s mod kind of vibe. But also, rather incongruously, a monkey song, a song by the monkeys, Stepping Stone. So in amongst these, you know, Pistol songs, you had these cover versions harking back to the 60s. So quite a strange mix. And the other fascinating thing I find listening to the recording is the interaction between the band and the audience. The shocking thing was their disregard for the audience and their lack of show. This seemed like a car crash. It was like watching amateurs. 
it really felt like amateur hour, but you were an amateur. <laughs> you didn't have interaction between bands and audiences. It just didn't happen. But on the recording, you can hear the pistol saying, you know, well, you got a lot of mouth there sitting in the dark. You've got a lot of mouth there. And I think those little interactions are some of the most interesting thing about the recording. The thing is that John, early on, early days, was really, really very, very in your face. And he would leer at people and he was just great at that. I mean, I just remember him being like really, really up front and going for it. And nothing we'd really heard before. We hadn't really seen anyone who, whose strapline was, we can't play, for example. Suddenly it was like a jigsaw puzzle in my life that started to come together. But I knew I was looking for something. I knew I was looking for something rebellious. It was the most appalling, shocking episode I'd ever seen on a stage. But the appeal of it was that you could relate to it and you felt that you could do it. I think one of the Crazy Mike guy was saying it was the biggest crock of steaming he'd ever seen in his life and he never hoped to see anything like it again. But I think the rest of us were, were quite excited. You know, we kind of delivered what we were looking for, which was a buzz, which was something different, which was something that would basically annoy a lot of people. It was a breath of fresh air. It was exciting and it didn't seem that tuneful in a way as well. Yeah. So it seemed new, really. Yeah. All of a sudden, seeing that gig, it made everything else redundant. Suddenly, the music had gone, stepped up a lot more notches. Everything was fast. When I went to see Led Zeppelin, like I did in Stretford at the Hard Rock, I didn't look at Led Zeppelin and think, you know what, I could do that. As soon as the Sex Pistols came on stage and started up with this unholy row and this unholy attitude and told everybody to F off, I looked at it and thought, you know what, I, I could do that. I could do that. The attitude and the look felt so natural. Yeah, it did. You know, it was exactly how you felt. Confused, mixed up, angry, aggressive, just wanting to tell the world to F off. And it completely delivered something that I didn't realise that I needed. Think about that music of that time. You had to rethink your consciousness about what music was doing to you. It wasn't just simply entertainment. It often related to a life and the generation and everything else. Complex things made simple. It was an assault on your senses. When you heard all these complex words wrapped up in a three and a half minute song, there's a lot to take in and it made people aware of things. It's possible you could have wandered past and gone, oh, there's a gig on tonight in the Lesser Free Trade Hall, or why don't we wander up and see Solstice banging out some sulvippy But I think the people who were there were up for it. They were of a certain type, so I feel, I feel good, you know, I was glad I was of that sort of person. Some weird noises coming out of these things. 
And whatever people say, like it was packed and heaving and everyone said that they were there, it was not many people there at all. I'm a believer in, in chaos rather than conspiracy. That's the thing about this. It's a great story. In a way, the pistols are, are almost the least interesting aspect of the story. What I think is more interesting is the way, this weird way this, these planets aligned. You've got Steve Diggle accidentally meeting the guys who he would form Buzzcocks with by some weird miscommunications. There's quite a few people said they were there. They'd say it was Mark Smith and the people from Joy Division, Hawk and Barney. You've got a group of lads in the other corner from Salford who are basically there for a, you know, a beery night out and they're looking at the pistols in a very, very Mancunian sort of way, which is, we could do better than that. And from that group of lads from Salford came what would turn into Joy Division. I know that there's been this big thing with Mick Hucknall saying that he was there. I don't remember seeing Mick Hucknall there at all. Well, I didn't know anybody there, I don't remember. There's a lot of fabricators of the truth in Manchester, I think, sometimes. <laughs> in the other corner, you've got a lad in glasses, not saying boo to a goose, quiet as a mouse in the corner, um, Stephen Morrissey. Morrissey. Came across him because he used to always send him letters to the NME, so we kind of heard of him, but didn't know him. Paul Morley from journalism, Kevin Cummings photography, to Steve Diggle, Marky e. Smith. You were in company of people like yourself. But there was a congregation of people, if I can believe that all those people were there, and I think probably it is true that Morrissey and certainly Buscots were. When you get a group of people in one place that see something that changes their minds about the rest of their life, then you've got to say that is life-changing for them. So you've got all this strange stuff going on in this room. All these people who don't know each other who happen to be in this room at the same time. And out of that becomes this myth that, oh, the power of punk, it touched these people and it transformed them and this, that and the other. I think it was the other way around. I think a lot of them looked at it and went, that's rubbish. We could do way better than that. And they did. And it was as simple as that. And me and Barney looked at each other with a, a sense of wonder and enlightenment. And literally, I said we should form a group. And that was it. You know, the ridiculous thing is that that decision was easy to make. Making yourself and turning yourself not only into a musician, but also I never held a bass guitar. I didn't even know what a bass guitar was and yet I went to a shop the next day and Barney had told me to get a bass guitar and I went into the shop Maisel's in Piccadilly and asked for a bass guitar and he gave me one and I said oh hang on mate this has only got four strings a guitar's got six strings that was how little I knew about it and the first one he handed me was the one that I bought. I'd borrowed £40 of my mother and the guitar was 35 
and the guy said to me, do you want a case for it? And I said, well, how much are the cases? He said, five quid. And that meant I would have had to walk home from Manchester to Little Holton. So I said, no, I don't want a case. And he went, no, here you are then. And he put it in a black bin line. <laughs> <laughs> so I got on the bus to Little Holton with this guitar in a black bin liner, not knowing what the hell I was going to do with it or anything, but feeling this wonderful excitement and hope for the future, my future. The day after the pistols, we went to Howard's house. He had a little rent in a flat in Salford somewhere. And both me, Pete and Howard all plugged into the same little amp and screamed through a few songs. As I say, to quote Yeah, it's a terrible beauty of bomb. It sounded terrible but beautiful, you know, in a, in a different way than the sex pistols. Being inspired by the Sex Pistols, their attitude and the fact that music was fast and exciting, that's what we were doing then, you know. If you'd have walked across the other side of the street, probably never met the other two, you know. It's all fate, it's kind of weird, really. I think if you, you want to do a linear flowchart of what came out of what, you can actually chart many, many things from that gig. I think it was a bow wave of things about to break and that kind of provided a, a pivotal moment in time. Well, there was a bit of excitement. He put a bit of excitement on the map for Manchester. It was like from that small stone in the pond, little ripples. So when the pistols came back and we opened up for them, suddenly they latched onto us around like, we've got a local band, you know. I think it was pretty rapid, to be honest. You know, I think that second gig that was at the Free Trade Hall, compared to the first gig, there was a lot more people there. And then, you know, there was a lot of venues that kind of sprung up on the back of that, like the Electric Circus and, you know, the Ranch Bar. The interesting part of the story for me is the audience and the creativity that came from them, either because they thought the pistols were the best thing they'd ever seen, or because they looked at it and thought, that's rubbish, I could do way better than that. That gig had so many tendrils that has gone through world music right round the world. I have to say that there would be no George Vision without the Sex Pistols. There would be no New Order. You look at the Hacienda, Tony Wilson, what he did. Truth be known, it gave Buzzcock the fortitude to be as brilliant as they were and are. This weird little gig in Manchester in 1976 sent these ripples out, not just through Manchester, but throughout the world. You know, Manchester was a huge musical tour de force everywhere in the world because of, you know, that Sex Pistols gig. It's hard to see a band that did not somehow have a connection to this funny, tiny little gig in an upstairs room in the centre of Manchester. It's bizarre. You're looking at a huge, rich musical history that was created from that one gig. And the majority of people in the world still cite those bands that came from them for shaping the history of music as it is today.
it changed the mentality of music and it changed how people thought. We didn't realise how much it influenced it and have on the world. It was just like making music for the moment, making it direct and making it real and exciting. It was like we were young, we wanted to make something powerful just for the moment. We didn't know how long it'd last. The point is, we didn't care how long it lasted. It does send a shiver down my spine to think what could have possibly happened if I hadn't have gone to see that gig, if I hadn't have parted with 50p for that ticket, what would Peter Hook be doing now? Oh, he doesn't bear thinking about. Well, I've said if Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I'm sure Punk was born in Manchester. <laughs> they had so many people there that were just waiting to bloom, if you like. Very important that you get the right people at the right time. Sometimes just fate brings people together. That night was one of those nights. I went my own way and I got a job. I, went, I actually left to Manchester and went to London, so I became a student. Um, the rest of them stayed behind, so I didn't, but... It completely changed my way of engaging with popular music and pop culture, really. It'll never happen again. As a gig, as a story, as a myth, it'll never happen again because this notion of who was there, who wasn't there, that just wouldn't exist. There's only one photograph of the audience and it's the back of everyone's heads, which is brilliant because it means that you can't prove it. You cannot prove or disprove that you were there or not. I really cannot thank... Johnny Rotten, Glenn Matlock, Steve Jones, Paul Cook, you know, Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood. I cannot thank them enough because they gave me everything. You know, every single moment that I pull my socks up, pick myself up, dust myself off, is because of the feeling that I felt at that gig when I saw Johnny Rotten walk up to that mic and just drawl F off. Thanks to Pamela Jordan-Rook, infamous punk and member of the Sex Pistols entourage, Peter Hook, attendee and future Joy Division and New Order bassist, Steve Diggle, attendee and Buzzcocks guitarist and vocalist, John Berry, audience member, and thanks to David Nolan, music writer. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure to share I Was There with Friends. I'm Sophie Kay, and this was an Absolute Radio production.